Welcome back to the Lydia McGrew channel. I am fitting in this recording before the window project on my house gets started. So hopefully there won't need to be a break in weekly broadcasts. Things are still pretty quiet around here and I'm recording this ahead of the beginning of the mess. Um, I'm continuing with the discussion of the alleged uh, development of the gospel crucifixion stories, specifically the claim of Bart Ehrman that uh, the gospel crucifixion stories become more anti-Semitic by attributing more blame to the Jewish leaders and less blame to Pilate progressively as we go through the Gospels, which for this purpose he puts in the order Mark, Matthew, Luke, John. Now I'm not going to recap what I said last time because I want to get right on to talking about John. Last time I talked about Mark and Matthew and Luke. There was one point that I don't believe I mentioned about Luke and it's relevant here to John, so I'm going to bring it up. Um, in Luke, the leaders, when they bring Jesus to Pilate, they lie about Jesus. Um, they say that he's been found teaching that you shouldn't give tribute to Caesar. And right from within Luke's gospel, you can tell that that's a lie. It's in all of the synoptics um, that Jesus is asked whether to pay tribute to Caesar. And he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. So we find the uh, religious leaders lying about Jesus in Luke, um, which we haven't found in Matthew or Mark, but we also don't find in John. In fact, one of the undesigned coincidences between John and Luke is that uh, Pilate in John asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And nobody in John has been recorded as saying that he claims to be king of the Jews. But in Luke, they do say that he claims to be king of the Jews. And they also say that he's uh, forbidding to give taxes to Caesar. So that's an undesigned coincidence there that Luke explains that question in John. The point I'm making here is that from the perspective of Ehrman's uh, claims, he could try to, you know, spin that lie in Luke as being some kind of, you know, increased blame to the Jewish leaders in Luke. But then there's the inconvenient fact that we don't find that lie in John. So again, we have one of these, you know, partial sequences, partial developments where we get something that the critic might want to make something of, but it's found in an earlier gospel, not in a later gospel, and the critic is trying to make it sound like that tendency is getting more and more and more as you continue. And so this would be, in that sense, another counterexample to that. Now, um, as you'll remember from the last time, the measure that Ehrman has switched to for the purposes of uh, contrasting Luke and Matthew is the number of times that Pontius Pilate explicitly states that Jesus is innocent, which Ehrman, strangely, says heightens Pilate's innocence. That doesn't make sense, but that's the measure he's chosen to use. 
Now, as it happens, between Luke and John, Pilate is recorded the same number of times as explicitly saying that Jesus is not guilty, three, three in each. Um, they may not be, in fact, the same three times, but it, you know, if you're just counting, it's three in each. So if you want a, a, a progression theory, you know, that doesn't work because, you know, you would want there to be four or five or six in John, you know, some higher number than in Luke, because on Ehrman's theory, John is this, you know, pinnacle of blame to the Jews. So he can't keep using that measure. He needs something else. So what's he going to do now to say that John is, you know, blaming the Jews more than Luke? So he switches again to something else. Um, and it's it's a really bad one. I mean, this is, you know, this is up there. If we're trying to rank misrepresentations of the Gospels, this one's pretty astonishing. So what he, what he does is he points to uh, John 19, verses 15 and 16. And uh, the first thing he, that Ehrman does is he engages in a little bit of Greek bullying. He says, uh, this is really striking in John, but it's something that you, you can't see in most of the English translations. This is completely wrong. Um, open up John 1915 uh, and 1916 on Bible Hub or anything else that just has like a ton of different English translations. and. Once I describe what this is, you'll see that it's right there. It's on, it's right on the surface of the English. So it's not true to say that this is, you know, there in the Greek, but you won't see it in most English translations. And what Ehrman's alluding to is that um, the chief priests in 1915 say to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. And then in 1916, it says Pilate delivered him to them to be crucified. Okay, we'll, we'll see in a minute what Ehrman's trying to do with this, but the, the datum he's using, the data point he's using is that the, the antecedent of them is the chief priests. As I say, that's obvious right in the face of virtually every single English translation. Like a couple of them just say delivered him to be crucified, but most of them say to them, unto them, etc. And guess what? We have antecedents in English, just like in Greek, and the antecedent of them is the chief priests from the previous verse. Um, little digression here on Greek bullying. Uh, Greek bullying is something that you, you really will see quite a bit from critical scholars. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there's never any insight that comes from the Greek. But Greek bullying occurs when a scholar um, implies, first of all, that you can't get a given point, you know, if, if you don't read Greek. And then second of all, that if you do read Greek or if you do, you know, uh, have the ability to understand these mysteries uh, of this language, you'll agree with his interpretation, okay? And so then if you disagree with his interpretation, it's kind of pat, patting on the head. It's condescending that, you know, well, that's because you are not in, an initiate into these mysteries. And that's exactly what Ehrman is doing here. Um, because then what he goes on and he says it because um, chief priest is the antecedent of them. He says, so they're the ones that carry out the crucifixion in John's gospel. And he, he says, this is very striking. It's at minute 23 in the second part of that discussion with um, 
Tim and Araman. I'll link it again in the show notes. Now, what is he implying? All right. Um, either he's implying that the chief priests literally physically carry out the crucifixion in John's gospel, or he isn't. If he isn't, then what's the point? Okay, if all that he's saying is that this is John's way of um, asserting what is there in, even on Bart's view in Matthew and Luke, which is that they're demanding that Jesus be crucified and Pilate's giving in to their demand, if that's all that he's talking about, then there, there's no point in making such a big deal that this is this striking increase of responsibility in the Gospel of John, even more so than in any of the previous Gospels. I think it's quite clear that he means the hearer, you know, maybe he would do kind of a bait and switch if he were pinned down, but he means the hearer to believe that literally the chief priests, you know, are are physically laying their hands on Jesus and crucifying him in the Gospel of John. Like, whoa, you know, this is, this is amazing, you know. Um, uh, increase in the responsibility of the Jewish leaders. But it's completely false. That is just a, a jaw-droppingly misleading, irresponsible interpretation of John. Just ripping those two verses out of context. Because if you just keep reading the passage, it's explicit the soldiers crucify Jesus. The soldiers divide his garments into four, which is one of those historical external confirmations of John, because a guard, a quaternion, was four. Um, the, the soldiers cast lots, they, they gamble for his outer garment. It's absolutely explicit that it's the soldiers and that this is the Roman soldiers. These are not the chief priests physically crucifying Jesus. And the clincher is that later in that same chapter, um, the, the same Jewish leaders, they want the bodies down off the crosses by before sundown because of the Sabbath, that it's against Jewish uh, regulations for dead bodies to be left up on the Sabbath or dying bodies to be left up on the Sabbath. So they, they want the soldiers to do this very brutal thing to break their legs so that they'll die quicker and uh, and then take them down off the crosses. What do they do? Okay, if, if they were the ones carrying out the crucifixion, then they just walk up and break their legs. No, they have to go to Pilate. And Pilate tells the soldiers to break their legs and then they discover that Jesus is already dead and the soldier stabs him with the spear. Okay, so just absolutely clear when you don't rip those verses out of context that John is not saying that the chief priests literally physically crucified Jesus. And if that isn't what Ehrman is saying, then what he's saying doesn't have any point to it. So it's terribly misleading uh, use of the Gospel of John that he's engaging in to try to keep up this development theory to make it this kind of pinnacle. Because as I discussed before, on his terms, and I'm going to question those terms, but on his terms, the, the verse that would seem to be the pinnacle would be back in Matthew, which he claims is the second 
of the Gospels, which is the uh, his blood be on us and on our children. But because he wants a progression that goes all the way through John, he always has to find something new to say about the Gospels thereafter. Now, I'm going to do a, a small amount of steel manning here, as they call it. If I were arguing um, Ehrman's point, I would not do that, for one thing, because it's really deceptive, obviously. But I would cherry pick a different verse, you know. I mean, it still, still would be cherry picking, but I would cherry pick a different verse. This is back when Jesus is having a dialogue with Pilate. And Pilate asks him a question and Jesus remains silent, doesn't answer it. So Pilate starts sort of, you know, threatening him. And don't you know that I have power to have you crucified or to let you go? Well, at that point, Jesus does answer and he says, you could have no power over me, no authority over me at all, unless it was given to you from above. And then he says, therefore, the one who has delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, commentators debate, does that mean Judas Iscariot? Um, one not implausible theory is that the one who has delivered him to Pilate refers to Caiaphas, who is the, the high priest and has been involved in all of this. Well, um, okay, this verse is not found in any of the other Gospels. And this is Jesus himself, who is you know obviously supposed to be an authoritative figure um, to the audience of the Gospels, who explicitly says that the one who has delivered him to Pilate has the greater sin. Plausibly, he means greater than Pilate's sin. To what is Jesus alluding? Uh, some commentators have said it's because they had more opportunity to know about his miracles, and so they were more to blame. He may just be referring to what is, is visible right there on the surface of the narrative, which is their greater malice and the fact that they're the ones who are, you know, thrusting him uh, upon Pilate's attention and insisting that Pilate, you know, crucify him. They actually get Pilate out of bed, by the way. Um, it's like early in the morning. Um, so, you know, Pilate's just kind of do, try, he's trying to do his governor thing. And then he's dragged out of bed um, right before, you know, the Sabbath, you know, on the Friday and these people demanding that he crucified Jesus. So that may be what Jesus is alluding to there. So if you want to argue for uh, something unique in John that says that uh, Pilate's sin is less than the sin of the Jewish leaders, that verse would make a better candidate because it is in fact unique to John and it, that is what Jesus appears to be saying. In the bigger picture, I don't think that there is a development here because all of the Gospels going, you know, all the way back to Mark are in agreement that they are pressuring Pilate. Pilate does need to have his arm twisted. And as we've seen, there are unique things uh, in Matthew or in Luke that uh, cast blame, you know, upon them and so forth that aren't found in John. So you really don't have a progression no matter what. Uh, but I'm just, you know, helping Ehrman out by picking something that at least doesn't require outright deception to refer to. At this point, I want to back out and I want to question this entire way of approaching the question of, are the Gospels anti-Semitic? The way that Ehrman is approaching it is more or less to say that if 
evil actions are attributed to Jewish people in the Gospels, uh, and especially in the crucifixion of Jesus, and especially to the leaders, then this constitutes a kind of propaganda against the Jews. And part of his reason for that is the way that these documents are used in later times. But the way that a document is used in later times doesn't really tell us the meaning of the document. Human beings can be really, really evil of, of any group, and they can be evil in groups. It just isn't true that if you attribute an action that is evil to a group of people, that this constitutes some kind of propaganda against all members of this group. So to take an example, if, if you read a Holocaust memoir and it's talking about the evil things that uh, certain Germans did, which were really horrible evil things, is this anti-German propaganda? So it, you know, it didn't happen, it's exaggerated um, and so forth. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's historical. Does it mean that if we accept that historicity, we should believe that all Germans now living are evil? No, that doesn't follow either. Should we accept, if we accept the historicity of those uh, stories about evil actions by Germans, does that mean we should hold that there's some kind of, you know, uh, objective blot on the soul of every child of German descent who is born now? No, that would be wrong. That would be superstitious. What if someone engaged in terrorism against uh, the Germans, you know, blew up a bomb or something and left a, a, a message, like a manifesto saying, well, I did this <clears throat> because of the Holocaust. I did this because, uh, you know, Germans are bad and they deserve this because of what they did during the Holocaust. Um, would that mean that we should reject the historicity of the Holocaust? Obviously not, right? I mean, that, that, that some later evil person uh, made use of it for that purpose doesn't make it non-historical, doesn't mean it's something we shouldn't believe. The portrayal of Pilate in all the Gospels, including John, is very believable. He's cynical, but he's also superstitious. There's all this extra stuff that you can't fit into some kind of progression, you know, just him getting kind of scared when they say that uh, Jesus claimed to be equal with God. Um, you know, where does that fit into a progression? It really doesn't. Um, he's sarcastic. You can tell he really hates the Jewish leaders. Oh, shall I crucify your king? You know, and that he writes, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and they try to get him to change it. And he says, what I have written, I have written. He obviously knows, and it says this right from Mark, that they're acting for envy. And he kind of despises himself for being used in this way. And yet he doesn't have uh, enough moral character to just say, I'm not going to do this because this man is innocent. Um, so it's, it's this very believable historical scenario that we have. And I think it is historical. And it really doesn't help our understanding of history for us to declare that to be off limits to believe historically because of the abuse that's been made of it later on. It easily could have happened, even, as I said last time, that terrible thing 
that, that some people cry out from the crowd, his blood be upon us and upon our children. We shouldn't be superstitious. We shouldn't believe that God looked down and said, aha, you said that? Fine, you know, I'm going to make terrible things happen to your children because you said that, you know, that you accepted his blood upon your children or that um, we should regard all of their descendants as cursed because they said that. You can't, you can't, you know, put a curse on your descendants just by saying, hey, if I'm doing wrong, you know, let it be upon me and all of my children. You know, it's like God is not obliged to go along with that metaphysically. So these things all could very easily be historical. Things that they said, things that they did because they were bad people. But that doesn't mean that they're anything about descendants, anything about, um, you know, later atrocities against the Jews. It doesn't make them anything other than also evil and atrocious. And fortunately, uh, what the New Testament teaches is that forgiveness is available to all of us for all of the evil things that all of us have done um, through the blood of Jesus that he shed because of the evil things that were done to him. He was crucified and died for our sins. So I just, I want to say, I've been critiquing this development theory on its own terms, but its own terms are very poor. They're an attempt to sort of shame people into rejecting the historicity of certain uh, appalling actions on the part of certain people at the time of Jesus because of slapping the label of anti-Semitic upon uh, that report. And that's just not a correct label. I hope that this has been useful as a debunking of development theories of the Gospels. That's what we exist for here. That's what I exist for here on this channel is to bring these things out in a new way, maybe in a way that you haven't heard before, and to make common sense rigorous.